Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the train strikes in the UK and who is to blame, plus Labour's devolution revolution. To do this, I'm delighted to be joined by Robert Wright, the FT's transport correspondent, Andrew Bounds, our North of England correspondent, Henry Mann's political correspondent, and down the phone line, Christian Walmart, who's a commentator on all things train-related. Thank you all for joining. So this week, it's been back to the 1970s for Britain, and we're not talking about Europe for once. Southern Rail, which operates the very busy commuter route between Brighton and London, has been on strike over a dispute about staffing levels on its trains. RMT, which is the Transport Trade Union, has been arguing against proposals to remove conductors from trains and give the responsibility to drivers. Southern Rail say it's necessary to modernise the network and reduce costs, and at the end of the day, it's been chaos for passengers again. But it's not even over, because the Eurostar is set to go on strike, and RMT members on the Virgin East Coastline have balloted to go on strike. So, Robert Wright, it's all a bit of a mess at the moment. How much of the strike is about the RMT trying to cause trouble against the new government, do you think, versus a genuine safety concern here about the Southern Rail Link? If I can come up with a third option, I don't know if that's allowed. I think it's probably neither of the above. I think to a large extent what's going on here is the RMT faces a really serious existential crisis. At the moment... Because conductors close the doors, they've got a safety-critical role, and consequently, if conductors don't turn up, they can stop the trains. If this reallocation goes ahead, essentially you've got a position that the RMT will no longer be able to stop the trains. Now, their members are still going to be paid the same for the moment. There are going to be no compulsory redundancies for the moment, but the union is going to lose an awful lot of leverage. And I think a lot of people think that's really fundamentally what's going on here. Christine Walmart, do you agree with Robert or is there a genuine safety concern about removing conductors and giving the responsibility to drivers? I do largely agree with Robert, but I would like to stress that speaking to both train managers and staff, there is actually something of a safety issue. Yes, there's a lot of driver-operated only trains across the network, but Southern is a particularly crowded network with lots of stations where there are literally hundreds of people standing on the platform at busy times. And there is a question whether it is really a good idea to have the driver operating the doors, even with the help of CCTV and the like, when there's curves, when there's a lot of people blocking the view and so on. Uh, So there is a a bit of an issue there. But Robert is right that uh, essentially they are fighting for their uh, political lives, for their ability to stop uh, the network in a way that very few industrial groups can do anymore. But we're not at a return to the 70s. That is a nonsense. Things have changed so radically. Unions are so much weaker. They've been weakened by both technological change and legislative change. So to say this is a return to the 70s is just a bit of uh, August hype. 
If I can say something briefly about the safety issue, because I don't think it's the biggest thing, but I'm a humble reporter. I try to listen to what people smarter than I say about these things. And the Rail Safety and Standards Board has had a look at this issue. They say that there isn't really a safety concern about driver-only operation, and they say in some circumstances it can be safer. Conductor who's out in the train can be distracted by passengers. Drivers are going to have CCTV. So I struggle to see that safety is really the core of this issue, frankly. And Christian, this is obviously bringing into question about the structure of Britain's rail network yet again, that passengers pay huge sums of money for these season tickets. And there's a lot of very annoyed people here. And um, Govia Thameslink, which runs the Southern Rail Network, has come under a lot of criticism. Is there any suggestion the government might remove the franchise from them or even, I don't know, nationalise it? Well, the government is a bit of a pickle here, actually, because this is not a franchise, and that's an absolute crucial point. This is a management contract. And the big difference there is that there is no revenue risk for Govia, and that it is actually the government that's been funding the consequences of this industrial action. That's very different from other franchises where it would be the private operator that was taking the risk. So the government has been pressing Govia to take a hard line. And the union has quite rightly said that it's found that it's not really negotiation with Govia. It's actually negotiating with the government behind the scenes. So for them to then punish Govia by taking the management contract away would be a bit odd. But that said, uh, Govia has performed badly generally. Uh, you know, long before this dispute came to the fore, uh, it has been cancelling trains and there have been an awful lot of complaints. And it has lost the support of staff and railway companies need the support of staff uh, to do overtime and that sort of thing to maintain a full service. I think it is very clear that Govia tried to launch this operation with too few staff, and I know that there's some resentment from other train operators that they feel that they put in bids to operate this franchise, and they weren't as optimistic about the service they could run, so Govia has undoubtedly made some serious mistakes. But I think we really need to think a little bit about the role of a private train operator in the UK at present, because you can see there's an awful lot of resentment from passengers about the fares that they're getting charged by these private train operators. And I think there's sometimes an assumption that it's paying for somebody's Rolls Royce somewhere. But actually, in some senses, private train operators really fronts for the government's attempts to make the train system economic. There's been a huge reduction in the proportion of rail industry costs that are paid for by taxpayers. And really, the train operators have had to collect that from people. So in a sense, they're really fronting for uh, a policy that the government has certainly not made a big fuss about. I personally think that it was indefensible to have taxpayers paying half the cost of the railways, which was the case a few years ago. So I, I don't think it's a bad policy. But in a sense, I feel a little bit sorry for train operators that face angry passengers who feel that these people are taking this money off them when really they're the fall guys for a government policy. Actually, there is a point here that it's all very well to say that all this is down to uh, government policy. But if the rail companies were more efficient, they would be actually reaping the benefits of the fact that their trains are much fuller. 
and therefore they might not need to pass on such uh, higher fares uh, because uh, they have more people per train and the marginal cost of an extra passenger is uh, virtually nil. And yet, oddly, in the rail industry, those efficiencies are not made, despite the fact that it's supposed to be a private industry where private companies are seen to be at the forefront of being able to manage things efficiently. That hasn't happened in the railway, so it's not all the government's fault. Secondly, I think you're wrong about the 50%. If we had a rational view of economics, we would see that the railways perform enormous benefits, much of which are externalities, which cannot be captured through the fare box. And uh, the government should actually recognize that and be prepared to fund that precisely because so much of it is not gained through the fare box in terms of decreased congestion, environmental costs, ability to create jobs and so on. So it's a nonsense to say that the railways should pay for themselves. Well, I thought you might disagree with me on that, Christian. And I've heard that argument before, obviously. My view about it is simply this. Trains in the UK are predominantly used in the southeast. They're predominantly used by people who are wealthier than average. And when 50% of the cost was being paid by taxpayers, I was rather offended by the idea that bus driver in somewhere like Blythe was subsidising the season ticket of a stockbroker who chose to live in Hampshire rather than somewhere closer to the city. So I've always thought quite sincerely, I think there's a social justice issue here, that before there was a net transfer of wealth through the train system from poorer people to wealthier people, and I think that's a problem. I can perfectly understand why a Conservative government is not making a big fuss about ending this, but I think it's actually a socially just thing for them to do. Christian, it's obviously the Labour Party's official policy now, I believe, to renationalise railways in some form or another, bring back British Rail as the campaign. Would that solve any of these issues to do with the funding of the train system, do you think? No. I mean, effectively, remember, half the rail network has been renationalised anyway. The infrastructure and track is now run by a company that is effectively a, a government agency, the Network Rail. And the other half is privatised through these uh, franchise contracts. My view is that it wouldn't be a bad idea to allow these to run out because I've never quite seen the benefits of this franchising system. But it's not going to save astonishing amounts of money and enable a completely different approach. It might save a bit of money, and I think it would. I think that the idea of separating track and infrastructure was always a complete mistake and is the wrong way to run a railway. But, you know, it's not a panacea. And the Labour Party has supported this, but hasn't exactly said how it would happen, because if a Labour government, by any amazing chance, which doesn't look very likely at the moment, came to power next year or in 20 whenever the next election will be, it would find that it will take many years for these franchises to come back in-house and create a nationalised rail network. It wouldn't be able to afford to pay compensation to these people. So it's not something that I think should be very high up on the Labour Party's agenda. I think they should concentrate on improving bus services, having more local say over transport, reducing the impact of car use and so on, and not thinking that rail renationalisation would be the solution. And finally, Robert, just on these other strikes that may be happening, the US Star One and the Virgin East Coast, are they set to go ahead? And is there any prospect at the time of recording that they may get cancelled? The Eurostar strike is coming very close. It's due to start on Friday. 
The issue with the Eurostar one is I'm not convinced that the train managers in Eurostar, the British train managers, can actually stop the service. So it looks like all the passengers will be able to be accommodated in some way or another. So I'm not quite sure of the point of that one. Virgin East Coast, at the moment, there are no scheduled strike dates. So we just need to wait and see what's coming there. But I think we can expect to see more industrial struggles between the RMT and the various train operators for the reason that I think Christian and I agree on. It's causing this that ultimately the RMT absolutely needs to maintain its industrial muscle and they really need to win this fight if they possibly can. And now on to devolution. Labour has selected its candidates this week for the Liverpool, Manchester and West Midlands mayoralties. And all of these folks are pretty likely to win their elections, with figures such as Sadiq Khan in London City Hall and potentially Andy Burnham in Manchester City Hall. They could be new power bases for the party outside of London, giving moderates a way to have some influence once again in the party. But it's also big news for these regions, with billions of pounds devolved down for health spending and very much more. So Andrew what did you make of the choice of candidates to begin with? Andy Burnham in Manchester and Steve Rotherham in Liverpool and Sean Simon in the West Midlands. Well, very interesting. All MPs or former MPs, so the local councillors who very much argued for devolution, negotiated the deals and got the powers, then got passed over when members actually voted on candidates. And do you think that was sort of unfair in a way? Or did they want big names to represent them to be Boris-like figures? Or was this just party manoeuvrings to give Andy Burnham a, a way out of Westminster? I think they did want big names. I think name recognition was a huge factor. And I also think that the successful candidates, at least in Liverpool and Manchester, campaigned very much as the voice of the regions around the edge of the city centres. The city centres have done very well in recent years and these guys posed as sort of champions of the towns around the edge that have been left behind in some of the economic regeneration that's gone on. So Andy Burnham's obviously been very vocal in campaigning. I will represent Manchester. I will get the best possible deal for Manchester. What did Steve Rotherham campaign on? He's Jeremy Corbyn's PPS and seemed to be a lesser figure in this. Maybe that's because people look to Manchester more as the heart of the northern powerhouse. It's certainly true that Manchester has the greater powers. Manchester is the one that's getting the six billion devolution deal, which includes health and social care. So putting those two things together. And I think people thought Andy Burnham as a former health secretary although he opposed the deal at the time, could be somebody that could help that happen. Uh, Liverpool has around a billion in investment funds coming in, and I think Steve Rotherham uh, is a local guy who's been a councillor, been an MP, fought for the Hillsborough families. So I think he very much was seen as somebody rooted in the community who would fight the Tories. There was an element of that as well. And these deals have been built on collaboration with the central government because they've had to negotiate. And then the campaigns have been very much dominated by Labour versus the Tories. And I'm the guy who can speak up for your area and tell Downing Street what it should be doing. Because this is the quite odd thing, Henry, that George Osborne worked with Labour leaders to create these deals, particularly in Manchester, but they're now faced with the prospect of having Labour mayors who are going to have probably quite different agendas to, say, a Conservative or an independent mayor now, what's that going to mean for these moderates in the party? Because if you're someone like Andy Burnham, who has served under Jeremy Corbyn, but is now going to start creating his own power base in Manchester with his own people and his own voice. And I think there are some people who see this as a way out for moderates who have felt stuck in Westminster with the whole Corbyn thing going on at the moment. Yeah, it's probably a good career move for Andy Burnham. Let's look at the problems facing the Labour Party. And one of them is that it's seen as a very Westminster-centred party that's lost touch with its working class support, particularly in areas such as the North, uh, Wales, etc. 
if it can put heavyweight politicians uh, into regional government, even if they've had previous lives as MPs and special advisors, it can start moving to a position where it's not seen as a party of Westminster anymore. These people start lobbying on behalf of certain regions, they become advocates, they become people who challenge central government. And there is a comparison with what happened in Scotland, that the SNP, it wasn't their devolution settlement initially, but they used the Scottish Parliament as a way of defining themselves um, as the advocates of Scotland, pushing Labour out of its comfortable heartland. Um, and I think that there's an opportunity there for the Labour Party. And do you think they're going to accept the devolution deals as they are? Because I know we've heard from some of the candidates, they really want to push to get even more money or even more power, but it's going to be the same old, well, Whitehall hasn't got any money, and then you've obviously got the Brexit uncertainty on top of that as well. Mm-hmm. And Theresa May's message so far has been you can't just focus on one region. So regions such as Manchester and, and Liverpool, which have been in this first wave of devolution, probably um, now will receive less attention than other parts of the country, which um, Theresa May thinks should have equal treatment. So I think that they'll struggle to make a case in the next few months about increased powers. But over a, a number of years, people start identifying more with a mayor. They start trusting them. And if they do a good job, they are in a very good position to lobby for more power. Because, Andrew, I suppose that's the London mayoralty is a bit of an example for that. It was brought in in 2000, and in Ken Livingston, Boris Johnson, Sadiq Khan has had three very able candidates who have spoken up for the city well, and that's, I guess, what they want to have. But are they going to be able to do that with the deal that they've got? The deals are fascinating in the sense that they're all slightly different. They've all been done on an ad hoc basis, and indeed the mayor himself is a metro mayor, which is six boroughs in Liverpool, ten boroughs in Manchester, and several boroughs in Birmingham, and they're still accountable to the local council authorities in those areas as well. So unlike a Sadiq Khan, he has a London Assembly to answer to, but he's got big executive powers. The big difference here is they have more of a platform and they can set the tone and they can come up with policies, but they've still got to get them through these council leaders and they've also got to provide some of the money for them. And how much concern is there about this idea of the Northern powerhouses taking a back seat? Because it was obviously a great project of George Osborne, the former Chancellor, who has still been out and about in high-vis this week. He really championed this. And we've not heard from the May government whether this is going to be cancelled, but it certainly seems to be taking a bit of a back seat, as Henry suggested. Yes, uh, George Osborne put that tweet out yesterday with the hashtag Northern Powerhouse, which I think was a bit of a swipe at Theresa May, who's yet to use the phrase. She does have a Northern Powerhouse minister. But as Henry said earlier, there's definitely a feeling that they want to move this to other parts of the country, outside the North, and indeed in the North itself. These figures, such as Steve Rotherham himself, started with a Northwest Powerhouse rather than a Northern Powerhouse. So maybe there's a bit of retrenching with some of these figures that they want to bat for their city rather than the whole region. So it's quite an interesting time for this whole agenda, which many people would argue it has to happen somewhere. And the argument by the Northern Powerhouse is it's the one place you've got the 15 million people, the economy almost the size of London's, where you can make a real difference if you actually connected those cities better and brought skill levels up. You can actually change the dynamics of the country and improve the economy, whereas doing it piecemeal in smaller places isn't really going to have that massive impact. Infrastructure is a key part of this, though, Henry. That was the Northern Powerhouse and High Speed 2, the new rail line up the uh, West Coast, was meant to be a way of connecting it. But that sort of thing has been criticising, well, maybe HS3, which was connecting northern cities, would be a more effective and better use of money. How much of a reset button is there going to be on those infrastructure projects towards the Northern Powerhouse under Theresa May, do you think? 
I think there's a limit to how many projects Theresa May can review and potentially cancel. I mean, Hinkley Point is the one they put most focus on. I think to tear up HS2 would really send shudders through some of the business community. On a rational basis, there may be a stronger case for HS3, but we know that's not how, or to be done first, we know that's not how infrastructure projects are commissioned and backed. They become someone's pet project and they get funding on that basis. Having said that, there are some people who say, look, infrastructure, these really big projects aren't the key. If you can give regional powers, if you can find the relationships that allow investment to come, if you can unlock the housing agreements, do that kind of stuff, then that may encourage businesses to grow in a way that you don't need huge white elephants to make happen. Looking at Manchester and Liverpool, Andrew, what are the main challenges for Mr Burnham and Mr Rotherham if they're successful in the first spate of directly elected mayor elections? Well, yeah, they still have to be elected, of course. They are certainly the overwhelming favourites, but as I say, these are wider regions than just the city, so there's some suburbs there which are Tory voting. UKIP will mount a challenge. Henry mentioned earlier on about Labour shipping voters towards UKIP, but I think they should probably make it. The biggest thing in Manchester is obviously the £6 billion health and the social care, which is important for the country, because if you can make that work, some people being held in hospital, old people, because the council doesn't want to pay for social care, then that will be huge. And that, that's his first challenge, I think, uh, in Liverpool. Both of them had challenges over the economy as well. They have had some success, but they're still far poorer than the national average. And just generally making the thing work. Uh, because you've got a new governance model, you've got new ways of working, you've got council leaders, some of whom are mighty peeved um, that these comers in as they were, that has blown in from Westminster and, and ridden to the nomination. So there's going to be some tensions there, and I, I think it's going to be a sticky months after May when these uh, elections are being held. It'll be interesting, finally, Henry, to see how these figures work, because obviously Mr Burnham, who's the most well-known, is very well-known on a national stage, having served in the Cabinet and senior positions, and a lot of the media is still very London-centric. The lot of political reporting is done out of London, and this certainly seems to shift away. And I remember someone who was slightly critical in government of the devolution agenda said, because local media has been decimated, but particularly local newspapers, this has an accountability problem, and it's going to need some some kind of rebalance that you've got all these powers devolved to down to local levels this adds a greater responsibility on local councils local media to make sure these people are not just getting away with whatever but obviously they're going to be keen to keep a national reputation as well so there's a bit of a balance there for them to strike mm-hmm. and david simon the american writer of the tv show the wire said this is going to be a great time for corrupt local politicians in the u.s so this is a global problem i mean the big bbc presence in manchester there is a tradition of local news newspaper journalism there which is pretty strong i think there will be accountability problems with this whole project of the northern powerhouse because it's been so vague in what it means so exactly what are we waiting for well we know a couple of rail uh, links but we don't know in detail what we're expecting as andy says these devolution deals across the country are very ad hoc so it's hard for people to grasp exactly what powers there are and exactly what commitments funding was made Having said that, there are people in Westminster who are out to get Andy Burnham, who think he's a flip-flopper, who think he was a Blairite, then a Brownite, then an Ed Milibandite, and, and now a Corbynite. So there are people who will look for his slip-ups, and his challenge is to show that what he did on the Hillsborough tragedy, that is really his contribution in politics, to stand up for people and stand up against Westminster. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT's Banking Weekly. It's presented by me, Patrick Jenkins, the financial editor at the FT, and I'm joined by a team and an external guest every week. You can find this every Tuesday 
at ft.com slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.